It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. When a guy stands up in court and says, I'm an effing idiot, I tend to believe him. And that's what just happened with this conviction. You know, everybody's seen the picture of this guy who on January 6th was sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office with his feet up on the desk and had a picture taken of himself. I mean, that was just one of the weirdest aspects of January 6th is how um, many people either got convicted or made it easier for the FBI to arrest them um, because they couldn't resist, you know, with the selfies and the and the videos and so forth. And this guy, whose name is Richard Bigo Barnett, he's from Arkansas. Uh, he had this song and dance at his trial, saying, you know, he uh, the, the momentum of the crowd just sort of pushed him into the Capitol. He hadn't planned on going in, and then he was just looking for a bathroom, and then he found Pelosi's office. And okay, once he was there, figured it'd be nice to get a picture. I mean, it wasn't exactly the best defense, uh, and he will be doing some jail time. Oh, and he left a vulgar written message for Pelosi, but I don't know what this is because uh, the media sensibilities are too delicate to share this with us. Um, new Siena poll having to do with George Santos. You know, Santos's strongest argument, when you strip away the fact that there are so many lies here, fabrications upon exaggerations upon pure fiction um, that clearly, you know, he's going to spend however long he remains in Congress trying to defend himself. But his argument is, look, I was elected by the people of this district in Long Island. Well, in this Siena poll, it's the first poll I've actually seen of the district. Two-thirds of Democrats say he should resign. No shock there. 49% of Republicans say George Santos should resign. He's viewed unfavorably by 59% of independents, 56% of Republicans, and 55% of Democrats. So whatever he's doing, it's not working. And I, I continue to see his headlines every day. And I've almost stopped clicking on them because it's like, you know, how many eye rolls you can do before your eyes get tired. Uh, Santos reveals he was once the target of an assassination plot. Santos says his shoes were stolen off, stolen off his feet on Fifth Avenue. Uh, I don't even have the details because I was just doing my usual daily search for important stuff to talk about with you here on the podcast. And, you know, there's only so much time, and I've spent a lot of time talking about Santos. I think Santos is an important, you know, he's a headache for the Republicans. And Drudge, of course, is having a feel. He's got a big picture of Santos dressed up in drag with the headline Republican drag, and then he goes to the poll. Isn't that clever? Uh, you know, I, a lot of the stuff I don't care about when you run for Congress and you claim you're a college graduate, you're NYU, um, graduate school attendee, you worked at Goldman Sachs and on and on and on. And all that turns out not to be true. And then all this other stuff comes out. There's another story that I didn't get a chance to drill down on. Maybe I'll do this for tomorrow, uh, where, uh, Santos was married to a woman. This has come out before. And while that was his status, uh, he proposed to his teenage boyfriend who I think turned him down or was pissed off. And I don't know, like, I can't figure that part either. Remember, this is a guy who claimed he was Jew-ish. 
but actually not. Story number one is really, really disturbing. And as a guy who used to cover the Justice Department and sometimes had to do these spying stories and these counterintelligence stories, it is almost unbelievable to me. I mean, it's good that they arrested this guy, but at a time when the FBI's credibility is under extreme fire from Donald Trump, for example, from those who believe the FBI is part of the deep state, some of this goes back to the Russiagate investigation, um, this is a huge embarrassment. FBI's former top spy hunter in New York. So this was a guy who was paid by the Federal Bureau of Investigation to track foreign spies. He was charged yesterday with taking secret cash payments. We're talking more than $225,000 while he was overseeing these sensitive cases. So it's a case of alleged bribery. that He took this money And this is a guy who rose through the ranks and was respected and, you know, was trusted with some of the nation's most sensitive secrets. And it involves the Russian billionaire, Oleg Deripaska, who wanted to get off the U.S. sanctions list. So here you have it. It's the perfect storm. The Russian oligarch, Deripaska, wants something from the government. He wants to get off the sanctions list. And the FBI official, Charles McGonigal, who actually retired from the Bureau back in 2018, but investigators are just catching up with him now, indicted on charges of money laundering, violating U.S. sanctions, and other counts stemming from his ties to Deripaska, who is, it will not surprise you to hear, a Putin ally. So, it's just unbelievable. Deripaska's been indicted. I don't think we'll ever get physically hold of him. A second indictment filed here in Washington accused McGonagall of hiding payments that he allegedly received from a New Jersey man who was employed decades ago by an Albanian intelligence agency. So this was quite the operator. Let's put it that way. Um, Now, clearly, at a time when... The U.S. is going after Russian oligarchs, very much part and parcel of the war in Ukraine. Ukraine just arrested a bunch of top officials in its own corruption probe. You know, it's funny. I mean, here, all these brave Ukrainians are fighting for the survival of their country, and some people still are crooked. Um, It's just the way it goes. It's not unique to Ukraine. I remember reading about some commission during our own World War II, a war profiteering commission to get back money that some people thought was a good idea to steal or, you know, jack up prices and so forth. Anyway, um, so it's a big black eye for the FBI, according to the Washington Post and others. Um, I mean, this was a guy who everybody trusted, who everybody thought was qualified, had earned the right, to deal with these secrets. He was arrested. And because he had worked uh, in New York, the investigation was run by FBI agents in L.A. and D.C., but not, obviously, the office that he worked with. Uh, Chris Ray put out a statement saying, we maintain the trust and confidence of the American people 
is through our work. We stuck to the process and we treated everyone equally, even when it is one of our own. We hold ourselves to the highest standard. Well, good for them for arresting this guy, but forgive me if I'm uh, not going to stand up and do um, a big cheer and a standing ovation because it never should have got to this point. Now, McGonagall pleaded not guilty. I don't quite get that. I'm trying to figure out what his defense is here. Um, He received $225,000 from person A. The first time in a parked car outside a New York restaurant. Second, two times at the person's New Jersey home. Okay. Months later, the FBI opened an investigation into an American lobbyist for the Albanian political party that's a rival of the guy he was working with. So that's the other case. I want to know more about the uh, oligarch. Um, According to the New York indictment, a law firm retained McGonagall to work as a consultant and investigator on the effort to get Deripaska removed from the sanctions list. He was listed as a consultant, arranged for $25,000 monthly payments to be sent to an account controlled by another person, an interpreter for the U.S. government who was a former Russian diplomat. That interpreter was also charged. Um, So this is really serious stuff. I, I, I do, I am glad the FBI was able to make this arrest, even though it's a black eye for the Bureau. And it's kind of, you know, shaking my confidence in the FBI, not somebody who subscribes to the deep state theories, but when you discover, you know, there there are often a lot of mid-level people who can't resist the lore. This is not just true with the FBI. This is true if, you know, you're overseeing contracts for the Commerce Department. I mean, there's just a certain level of temptation and sometimes criminality in private business, certainly, and in government as well. And a lot of mid-level staffers uh, succumb to that. But here's what I understand as we will move on in a second. How did this guy who knows the counterintelligence world so well think he was going to get away with it? How did this guy who knows all the techniques of how to move money and how to track money and how to hide money, how could he think that eventually his former colleagues wouldn't catch up with him. How did he think he could commit this crime involving a Russian oligarch and the Albanian guy as well and hide all that money and nobody would ever know? It was his his job to go after the spies and he ends up being arrested and indicted. Don't know what the defense is, can't quite make it out. But nevertheless, uh, I don't quite understand why people are so confident when they know the terrain so well. that Well, lots of people get indicted for these kinds of crimes. But I am such a mastermind that I can get away with it. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Number two, my take on the Joe Biden classified documents fiasco, and you'll recall that over the weekend, the FBI finally did what it should have done in the beginning and did a 13-hour search of Biden's Wilmington home. And then that wasn't revealed until Saturday night. 
by the Biden lawyers who seem to be following a philosophy of, we'll tell you a little bit when we absolutely have to, and otherwise we're just going to sit on everything, which is just, I mean, this is a story that could have been probably a a story that unfolded over a couple of days. And then even if there was an appointment of a special counsel, which I think there should have been, you know, I don't think Merrick Garland can make the decision about his boss. Um, it would kind of simmer for a while, but but instead, you know, there's nobody, there's virtually nobody except the most died-in-the-will loyalist who says this was handled well by the Biden team, uh, who says, yeah, well, that was a good idea to give out almost no information, uh, even when we had information, uh, who, you know, it's just it's just day after day after day. I mean, I do this for a living, and I got to keep up with it. Oh, look, they found one here. Oh, there's one in the garage. It's like a game of Clue, right? It's uh, Mr. McGonagall with a candlestick next to the Corvette in the garage. But Jim Garrity of National Review has an interesting take, and and I'm a sucker for this lead, so I'll just read it. Uh, I'll open with a statement that will probably piss off my mostly conservative audience. The Joe Biden classified document scandal is mostly a nothing burger says Garrity. But so was the Donald Trump classified documents scandal, in quotes. The massive media double standards that we observed during coverage of the two situations, however, aren't a nothing burger at all. They're a real problem that we should call out and mock whenever possible. And that can affect how fairly we can treat poor old Uncle Joe. So this kind of tracks with my thinking that in the end, Biden wasn't trying to do something. It was sloppy. It was careless. It, you know, classified documents from his Senate days. And I've yet to see any evidence other than if you want to go down the road of obstruction, that Donald Trump was somehow trying to profit or leverage these classified papers uh, in some kind of larger geopolitical scheme. Anyway, back to Garrity, as we heard endlessly for uh, weeks, a month or two back, Dastardly former President Donald Trump committed the potential felony of taking classified docs home from his former office. Uh, the FBI, he just gives some of the background, raided the Mar-a-Lago home. Media speculation approached hysteria. Some outlets noting Trump might have mishandled material bearing on global nuclear security. At least one million follower Twitter account began publicly referring to him as a nuclear spy. What? Okay. Uh, so Garrity then says, first, Trump turned out to have no real nefarious purpose in mind with regard to his papers. Then, current President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. was revealed to also have highly classified documents all over the place. And he goes into the, uh, in the garage and the, Biden, the Penn Biden Center, all the different places that where stuff has popped up. But here's the thing, he says, neither case looked at objectively. It was probably a giant deal. Biden should be investigated to the extent Trump was, but no breathing person seriously believes either man is an Emirati agent. And after Big Jim Comey basically made possession of classified information in active intent crime, at least for special humans, during the great Hillary Clinton email wars of 2016, there is a zero, actually a 0.000% chance that either will ever be prosecuted for his indiscretions. Speaking frankly, as a cynic, 
I would suspect a rather high percentage of elite former D.C. residents still have a sheaf or two of papers that they shouldn't. Uh, Garrity goes on to say that at some level, everyone knows the exact equivalent of the Hunter Biden laptop crisis would have been the biggest story in the world if Donald Trump Jr. had been filming himself weighing ounces of pure crack, having sex with young prostitutes before closing seven-figure deals with sketchy foreign businessmen. Even the admittedly deplorable January 6th riot would be a starkle footnote if conservatives or libertarians had been responsible for a previous year of urban riots that killed perhaps 30 people. In this context, it may be fair, and it sure is fun, says Jim, to hammer Joe Biden about Caralago. Caralago, I like that. But this is not because the octogenarian Paul actually is a foreign agent. It's because Trump clearly was not either. And our press needs to do better. Number three, I'm with Joe Scarborough on this one. Uh, Morning Joe was saying today that he's had enough and Americans have had enough and haven't we all had enough of these mass shootings? And if you look at it, today is January 24th, not even one month into 2023. And we're already... More people have been killed in this three-and-a-half-week span than has ever happened before. And the month isn't over yet. So I got a little bit involved in this, as I mentioned yesterday, because while I was on the air, Media Buzz on Sunday, there was a scheduled news conference, which we dipped into for for a few minutes, about this horrifying um, massacre of the ballroom dancing place in Monterey Park, California. At the time, the shooter was still on the loose. And then, as you have probably heard, you know, I mean, 10 people were killed. Actually, it's now 11 because another one succumbed to injuries. Uh, Nine others went to the hospital with injuries of varying severity. The uh, suspect, the gunman, uh, led police on a long manhunt and then killed himself. And it turns out the guy's 72 years old and is himself Asian-American. I mean, this was a celebration of the Chinese Lunar New Year's. I don't even know what to make of it. But then, yesterday, another seven people were killed in Half Moon Bay, California. But, as Scarborough pointed out, there was also a school shooting in Des Moines. Two students dead, another injured. Barely a blip on the news. Why? Because mass shootings are so common these days, says Joe, they now just become side news. And I've made this point many times, and it is depressing to talk about and think about. But these shootings have become so common that they don't, they get a lot of coverage depending on, is there something unusual about it? Is it clearly a hate crime? Does it happen uh, in a major metropolitan area? Uh, How high is the death toll? Um, And when you look at all of those things, some get a lot of coverage, but sometimes uh, then another one happens and it barely gets any coverage because we're all wrapped up talking about something else. I guess that's what Joe means by side news. And, you know, I could rattle off all the ones that tragically I've had to cover. And remember, it's not that long ago that the Buffalo supermarket shooting was a huge deal and that the Uvalde School massacre is still just breaks my heart even to think about it. So, New York Times has a little wrap-up here. Listen to the beginning of this piece. 
It was a mass shooting at a youth center in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and the one at a Subway restaurant in Durham, North Carolina. Another took place behind a beer hall in Oklahoma City, and another at a strip club outside Columbus, Ohio. Two mass shootings ended parties in different Florida cities, and that was just on New Year's Day. Now, if you don't find that chilling, uh, I don't know, you don't have a pulse. By the start of this week, Italy had grown to include at least 39 separate shootings in which four or more people were injured or killed. Now, this Half Moon Bay shooting, authorities say a 67-year-old man killed seven people, seriously wounded at least one other person, uh, in this town, which is south of San Francisco. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom said at the hospital meeting with victims of a mass shooting, when I get pulled away to be briefed about another shooting, tragedy upon tragedy. Now, the Times goes on to say, look, the frequency of mass shootings and the variety of places in which they now take place, is there any, you know, think about it for half a second, is there any place that is safe from the possibility of this kind of mass violence? At offices and schools, nail salons and houses of worship, grocery stores and restaurants, and I would add movie theaters and college campuses and high schools and elementary schools, contributes to the sense in America that such violence could break out at any moment anywhere. It fuels calls for gun control just as certainly as it does the purchase of more and more guns. Public shooting sprees rivet the nation, but can also have the effect of normalizing violence. And that's what I think has happened here. Um, you know, I don't want to get sidetracked. I mean, President Biden, and he tried this when he was vice president, and Barack Obama made him the point man on gun violence, tried then to get through some sort of assault weapon ban, was not able to do that. Now he's renewing his effort uh, to get some assault ban weapon through. That was the law of the land for 10 years, beginning in 1994 with Biden spearheading the effort on the Hill during the Clinton administration. Now, of course, it's not going to pass. They couldn't pass it when they controlled the House and the Senate. Now you have a Republican House. So they'll talk about it. They'll make it an issue. And in all honesty, you could have a assault weapon ban tomorrow. It wouldn't stop some of these crimes. It might stop a few. That's the argument. But it's the normalizing part of it. The fact that a story of a major shooting, I mean, used to last at least two weeks. Now, maybe last two days. Today is Tuesday. By Friday of this week, is anybody going to be talking about Monterey Park? Is anybody going to be talking about Half Moon Bay? Will there be another shooting that pushes those into the background? Or will we just be wrapped up in other political news or there'll be an earthquake somewhere or some, something like that? And a lot of these other shootings, when you, you, know, you have two, three, four, five people killed, it's a big local story. Every, you know, everybody goes live at five. But it's tr- tragic. Every loss of life is tragic. I don't have the answer. I do believe there are... You know, America's just a wash in guns. You can't, you look at the numbers and there's no other country that even comes close to our level of gun violence. Um, 
And, of course, there's also the long tradition in this country dating to the Second Amendment about people being able to defend themselves. I saw some probably liberal or Democrats say that the Second Amendment was not intended to be a suicide pact. And at least Biden did was able to agree with Republicans last year on a bipartisan approach that was modest by everybody's account, dealing mostly with mental health issues, because I think by definition, most of the people who do this are crazy. Um, and um, a little bit of uh, tightening when it came to the handling of guns. And then you got these red flag laws. You, know, you find out some, somebody's been posting all this violent stuff and yet doesn't get arrested until it's too late. So it really shouldn't be side news, but that's the reality. And here we are, January of 2023, and it seems like we're on a record-breaking pace. And I do have the impression that people have just sort of thrown up their arms and say, gee, I I hope and pray it doesn't happen in my community. I hope and pray it doesn't happen to anybody that I know. Um, But nevertheless, each one, as I say, is an awful tragedy with people... You know, these are not, I'm not including in this sort of gang shootouts or somebody who goes and, although I suppose you would include this statistically, and fires at the office he just got, where he just got dismissed from a job. Those kinds of things have always been with us. I'm talking about just the wanton killing of innocent victims, somebody who, elderly Chinese people who go to a dance hall to celebrate the Lunar New Year. Um... And you could go on and on down the list. Las Vegas, Orlando, you know, there's people out trying to live their lives, have a good time. So this is the subject that we'll return to. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story four, Elon Musk on trial. And this has to do with Tesla. And it's a little bit complicated, but he was testifying yesterday that it had to do with some tweets that got him slapped down by the SEC. This is some years ago, and this is the trial. He said he testified he had trouble sleeping the night before. Unfortunately, I'm not at my best. And the jurors should know that he felt that funding was secured due to his ownership of SpaceX stock alone. Uh, I'll explain in a second. Quote, just as I sold stock in Tesla to buy Twitter... I didn't want to sell Tesla stock, but I did sell Tesla stock. Um, that's how he got a lot, a sizable chunk of the $44 billion to overpay for Twitter and take it private. Musk sold nearly $23 billion worth of his car company shares just between April, last April and December. My SpaceX shares alone would have meant that funding was secured, Musk said of the 2018 tweets. So the question was, was he manipulating the market by saying, I've got the funding now on Tesla? This is years before, he may have been thinking about buying Twitter, but years before he ever made a move. The judge declared, had declared earlier, that jurors could consider the two tweets that are at the heart of the case to be false, leaving them to decide whether Musk deliberately deceived investors and whether his statements saddled them with losses. Uh, Musk had entered into a settlement with the SEC, 
and maintained that he believed that he hadn't locked up financial backing for a Tesla buyout. I see, he was talking about taking Tesla private. And of course, that's a big market-moving event. He had met with representatives from Saudi Arabia's public fund, public investment fund. And then Musk said he had funding secured for what would have been a $72 billion, this makes Twitter look like an afterthought, buyout of the electric car company. Uh, a lawyer representing Tesla shareholders asked Musk if he went, oh, I see, he said it was $420 a share. If he went with 420 because it was a joke your girlfriend enjoys, Musk said there's some karma around the number 420. It's a slang reference to marijuana, in case you didn't know. Um, but he doesn't know if it's good karma or bad karma. All right, this is officially a weird trial. He then said that his number was a coincidence. Um, I don't know. What's the jury going to do? If the jury finds that Elon Musk, with those false tweets, at least according to the judge, misled investors. Remember, none of this happened. He didn't take Tesla private. What kind of sanctions would accompany that verdict? And how would that affect his ownership of Twitter? You know, the New York Times Magazine has a big picture of a crashed Tesla car looking into the accidents as, as Musk, who's not the only one, is trying to develop a self-driving car for his company, which was wor- once worth, before the recent stock slide, you know, as much as all the other major American car companies combined, and not just American. And so I thought, oh, you know, here's the Times out to get Elon Musk. But they, actually, the centerpiece of the Times Magazine story is a guy who had an accident with a self-driving driving Tesla, but thinks that they can be the Tesla's self-driving cars can be perfected to the point where accidents are very minimal. In other words, he, he then bought three more Teslas. There's a lot of long interview with him. So I don't know if my car, I'm driving, if I'm just sitting there and the car is driving and it tries to kill me, I think I probably wouldn't buy another one. On the other hand, it's like air travel, right? The very relatively few airline crashes get a huge amount of coverage, but everybody knows that it is a far, far safer way of traveling than, say, just driving a car around your neighborhood on on the highway. I don't think we'll ever have a a car, whether it's powered by artificial intelligence or humans, that is completely safe from any accident whatsoever. But if the accident rate can be made so low that it's better than what a tired person can do where he doesn't react uh, in proper fashion. Well, it's just an interesting thing to contemplate. All right, number five. Chris Whipple has been talking to Ron Klain regularly. Chris Whipple, an author of a book on White House Chiefs of Staff. I have a column today about this. And I contrast Ron Klain, who I say generally gets good press because he uh, is very accessible to reporters, knows how to work the press, knows how to play the Twitter game, and very fast on email, and he's been around a long time, and journalists generally like him. And I contrast that with the CNN headline about his successor, and they handled, they rolled this out with a perfect series of leaks in 24 hours, as I mentioned yesterday. Who is Jeff Zients? Well, I now got the pronunciation right. It rhymes with science, somebody put in their story. So Chris Whipple has an op-ed, and he says that claims. And, and his book has been reviewed. I've read the review. Obviously, I haven't read the book. 
And it says that, that if anything, Whipple is so sympathetic to Klein that he doesn't ask the hard questions. Well, we'll see. Uh, so in the op-ed, he says, Klein's patient nose through the grindstone stewardship ultimately paid off. He had a rare combination of assets, White House experience, knowledge of the Hill, political savvy, managerial acumen. His collegial style kept the West Wing practically leak-proof and drama-free. Yeah, what's up with that? I, I don't like the drama-free part. I, I, I miss White House drama. More importantly, Mr. Klain had a strong relationship with the boss. This is from this New York Times op-ed. Uh, and he talks about Biden rallying NATO in defense of Ukraine. I don't know how much credit Klain deserves in the foreign policy arena. But look, he's the White House chief of staff. Ultimately, he gets credit or blame for just about everything. And the piece talks about the uh, bipartisan laws that were passed, uh, et cetera. Now, here's the interesting part why I'm bringing it up. Um, The average tenure for a chief of staff is 18 months because the job is so grueling. Um, I spoke with him regularly. During a conversation on the patio of his West Wing office in late October 2021, so that's just about... 10 months or a little bit less into the job. He told me he was exhausted and considering quitting. But Klain, a student of history, knew the risk of leaving too close to upcoming midterm elections. Previous Democratic chiefs thrust into the job on short notice suffered shellackings by the Republicans. After talking it over with his wife, uh, Mr. Klain decided to soldier on. So he was at least seriously considering quitting. Um... And, you know, then, of course, oh, this is interesting, too. Claim, because of his long relationship with Biden, says Chris Whipple, was able to sit him down, because Biden wanted to go campaign everywhere in the midterms, sit him down and saying, look, you should only go to states where you can make a difference. You should focus on abortion and threat to democracy, which a lot of us pundits said, ah, yeah, that's not what it's about. It's about inflation, and it's about the border, and so forth. So... Klain's theory of the case turned out to be true, and he had the status and closeness to tell the President of the United States, hey, you can't do this. You go around everywhere, you're just going to help more Democrats lose. As for Jeff Zients, he has weaknesses that could spell trouble ahead, in the opinion of one Chris Wibble, because of his involvement in corporations. He served on Facebook's board. Democratic progressives regard him with suspicion. And he doesn't have a lot of political experience. So probably the political stuff will be handled by Steve Rochetti, Anita Dunn, Jennifer O'Malley-Dillon. And Zions will sort of be the, keeping the, uh, the wheels of government turning in the West Wing. That's okay. There's been a lot of chief of staff, chiefs of staff, as I say, in this um, column today. Some were, went to jail. Others uh, were just bureaucrats. Others were indispensable to their presidents. And so Klain probably is more in the indispensable category. But, you know, there are different models. And if Jeff Zions is enough of a good behind-the-scenes manager, he can just make sure that the government functions well. You know, Biden's got a lot of political hands who can help him with the re-election, which I still expect him to run. I don't know when that will come. But... He'll have to do it without Ron Klain, unless Ron Klain ends up being either an informal advisor to the campaign or part of the campaign. In which case, if he's going to get a little bit of time off now, he'd better enjoy it. 
I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you will subscribe if you're not already getting it on your phone. Thanks for spending the time. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzBeater. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.